0: You're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. I'm your host, Ramin Sheth. One of the topics we've been most excited about here lately at Square One is technology platform shifts. If we look at history, we see that irrespective of the way financial markets perform, technology platform shifts happen consistently every 10 to 15 years. One of the most important platform shifts of the next decade is voice. Consumer markets have started to appreciate the strength of Alexa, Echo, and Google Home, but the recent demonstration of Google Assistant at Google I.O. this year really expanded the imagination for what will be possible in a decade as deep learning and natural language exponentially improve. That's why in episode 24, it was a thrill to chat with Omar Tawakal, one of the key players in today's enterprise voice landscape. Omar is the CEO of Voicera, a voice-activated AI for the workplace, and he and his team have raised $20 million to leverage AI to augment tasks, make meetings more productive, and create more efficient workflows. Omar, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Omar, I, I want to really dive into voice today, but you know, before we jump into that, I think it'd be a disservice not to spend a bit of time on lessons you learned from building and scaling the Oracle Data Cloud. You know, as background for our listeners. After you sold Blue Kai to Oracle, you grew the data cloud from inception to over 1,000 people, pioneering the ODC to become the leading data-as-a-service provider to 96 of the top 100 U.S. marketers. Talk a bit more about what it means to be a data-as-a-service provider and the top key insights you learned in bringing ODC to such scale.
1: Yeah, so when, when Oracle acquired BlueKai, a lot of the original thesis was around the fact that we had a SaaS model that helped people um, manage their own data in the marketing ecosystem. And that was really central to how marketers were going to operate because they were going to be much more data-driven in how they bought uh, media. Uh, But part of our business was also this data exchange business that was very different than the rest of Oracle. So Oracle had a hardware business, had a software business on-premise, and it had SaaS business. But it didn't have any data business, even though, coincidentally, Oracle House, Challenge that was put to me was you know, take this piece of the blue kai business at that, that point, it was roughly half of it, and build it out, but go way beyond kind of the idea of. Uh, Um, But that becomes super noisy because it's it's literally every couple of days, you know, something else comes across your desk. So instead, we had uh, a strategic map that said, this is what we want to build over the next couple of years. This is kind of our core strategy and what we think is going to give us a really strong competitive advantage. So we're much more thoughtful about it. And we set out and, you know, just organically grew our business. around this concept of what I call the identity graph, which is, you know, marketers are serving, um, marketing messages to people on TV, on search, on the website, on mobile, and they usually speak about having a 360 degree view of the customer, but I argue they only have an 18 degree view of the customer because um, they don't actually know that it's the same person doing the search that's coming up on mobile uh, as they're emailing, as they're trying they're, they're to ad to on TV because there's no way of projects uh, and offline world. And we would just make it happen. And they would simply write a check to Facebook or Google. They didn't have to have an I.O. with us. They didn't have to have a contract. They didn't have to have software. So it was a very uh, scalable way of doing business with uh, very few barriers to getting to a sale.
0: That's interesting that you mentioned the the way you philosophically thought about data as a service, because I think there's some parallels to your current project. You know, after Oracle, you transitioned to starting Voice era, uh, which you know by background for our listeners is an AI voice assistant for the enterprise. And your team has raised you know about twenty million and has an impressive roster of, Classical venture firms, Google Ventures, Greykoff, Battery, and the like, but but also a host of corporate venture firms. You, know, you have Microsoft Ventures, Workday, and, and Salesforce Ventures. So tell us a little bit more about the problem uh, as well as the scale of the problem that Voiceera is addressing, as well as the thought process behind having a mix of traditional VCs and corporate VCs. Yes, yeah, so I'll start with the, uh, VC half of the question. So, you
1: know, we, we, of course, from Blue Kai had good relationships with folks at, at Battery and, uh, and eVentures and Raycroft and, and, uh, DGV and folks like that. So, you know, we started out the conversation, uh, with them. We did a seed round that included them and also included Salesforce. And, um, uh, and it was a single corporate at that time. When we came to do our Series 8, there was just strong demand from the, uh, corporates. But more importantly, we were selecting the ones that had a, a potential strategic uh, uh, value to us. So if you think about what we were doing, we wanted to impact every voice conversation in the enterprise. And where, where do people already have distribution there? Well, you've got Microsoft because of Skype. You've got Cisco um, uh, because of WebEx, which is it's huge uh, penetration. Uh, Google uh, has Google Hangouts. Uh, and in addition to that, some of these folks, that, that's kind of the input. How do you get into a voice conversation with well, these guys that you know, already have systems that people do conference calling on? Um, then there's the output. How do we impact work, uh, kind of workflow? And most of these companies had really significant workflows that you would want to impact after the, the conversation. So they were strategic to us. That's why we, we uh, kind of were, were happy to have we were kind of lucky because some of these were proactive conversations where, where they came to us, um, kind of were interested in what we're doing, and it kind of naturally led into a, a funding round. Now, uh, let's talk about the, the market size of what we're doing. What we, we love the category we're in because it's, it's so full of opportunity for many reasons. The first one is if you had to ask what the largest indirect cost for most companies, you um, of that, are uh, uh, that knowledge workers? It's basically labor time and meetings. And the interesting thing about meetings is people spend so much time going from meeting to meeting to meeting, yet it's completely disconnected from workflow. At the end of, of your day, you want to have some time to remember to update Salesforce, to update Trello, to remember about some action you have to take by emailing someone a contract. Um, and of course, by then, your memory is faulty. Uh, and solve that. Sometimes people are furiously taking notes in meetings while they're doing that. They're seeing Facebook and email updates showing up on their screen. They're not paying attention to the customer or to their partner or who they're talking to. Um, So it's a big problem. And people have come to really accept that meetings, I mean, if you do autocomplete on Google, it'll it'll tell you people think meetings just suck. And so (laughs) great opportunity to go in and fix this really broad problem uh, in the enterprise. That's the first reason it's attractive, which is black hole from uh, from voice to workflow, and it needs to be solved. But there's a flip side to the problem that makes it even more interesting. When we started looking at companies, we were looking at productivity AI, and we, we were looking at email and calendar as areas where you could use AI to make people much smarter on how fast they responded to which email, not double canceling the meeting, meeting how they're allocating their time, all that kind of stuff, uh, and. Um, reason I didn't want to get funding for that kind of idea, even though I was convinced we could make a difference, is that if you're gonna build an AI company you have to have a data advantage. And half the world's calendared emails with Google, and the other half's with Microsoft. So if you're gonna build an AI as a startup and start to get traction, one of those companies could either build something themselves or buy your competitor who might have vastly inferior algorithms and software, yet when implied with mount when coupled with mountains of data, they could end up beating you. So kind of we're cautious about that space. We never ended up diving deep into that. Instead, when we started thinking about productivity AI applied to voice, we realized that 99.99% of voice conversations in the enterprise are in the ether. They're not in a system of record. No one owns the data, and therefore it was a white space opportunity. So that's why we kind of dive deep into this.
0: And talk talk a little bit more about how, you know, you derive competitive advantage in, in this space, right? In, for productivity software that's specifically related to voice because it's actually a little bit different than um, the way ODC derived competitive advantage, right? In ODC, the underlying competitive advantage was a classical network effect. Increased data sellers led to increased data buyers, which led to better monetization, creating a virtuous cycle of sorts. But at Voicera and, and with the focus on AI you can actually create a compounding effect. So more interaction data creates better algorithmic results, which leads to deeper learning preference, which ultimately just creates a better experience for your users. So what are the differences between those two types of competitive advantages, and why is the AI competitive advantage ultimately more powerful?
1: Yeah, you know, when you look at it from, uh, from 30,000 feet, they kind of look very similar, but they're not. And here's the, the, the key difference. Typically, the way you write software, and the way the vast majority of people write even AI software, uh, is that they'll they'll go out, they'll get the data, they'll build the model, they'll run the model for some period of time. At some portion time in the future, the engineers will get together and they'll create a new model. And then there's going to be some analysis on is the new model creating uh, better results than the old model? You have to look at false positives, false negatives, and, and it's very hard actually do that right so um it, you know I, I think i don't know if you've uh, heard the example uh, back in world war ii where they talk about um uh, looking at airplanes that were going out and trying to look at the bullet bullet patterns on the airplane to decide where to put more metal and um kind of save the airplane from being shot down and they look at where most of the bullets were and they said okay let's add more metal there until you, you know um scientists came in and and told them, actually, you're doing this completely wrong. It's the the airplanes that already got down that aren't here. Those are the ones that you want to look at. And there, the bullet actually just hit the fuel and it blew up. Um, So you adding more metal to everywhere other than the fuel is just going to make the airplane heavier. Uh, So you're just looking in the wrong place. So it makes it very hard when you're analyzing a new algorithm to see that the system made today are somehow tagged, identified, relearned, and the new algorithm is created, and then it's judged against past algorithms in the right way, looking at false positive and false negative, and then you roll it out. If you could actually pull that off, and I, and I would argue that this is
0: Yeah, it does. I, and I, I think the nuance, actually, between the competitive advantage and, and the compounding piece is is actually really interesting when you think of what it means for the question of whether startups or incumbents are better positioned to take advantage, right? Startups traditionally have advantages over incumbents in a, in a whole host and variety of ways. Um, very targeted focus, right? Building on a new and advanced technology stack, not having structural concerns of existing products, you know, P&L targets. um, you know, fighting for funding in a in an enterprise. But in this case, I think you can actually make the argument that well positioned technology incumbents have massive advantages due to the compounding nature of it. You know, AI-based businesses at scale, as you mentioned, are really tough to build. And when you have competitors like Amazon and Google who have both excelled at the technology as well as the distribution, you know, obviously in Alexa and Google Home, it, it gets all the tougher. So how do you think about those dynamics, you know, as it relates to startups that are tackling voice and and AI in this space?
1: They're extremely significant uh, dynamics that we have to to watch. I'll digress for just a minute. So if you look at things like GDPR uh, and what they've done to the marketing world, um, the regulators don't understand that they are going to create even more concentration. So if you look at kind of how revenue flows in the marketing industry, it's getting so concentrated between Google and Facebook and I would argue the third one that's emerging is Amazon, Uh, GDPR will accelerate that and those companies will use it to their advantage and they will start to roll out strategies that sound like they're about protecting consumer privacy where they're really about making sure that they get more market share. So the regulators have handed those guys just a beautiful gift in terms of um, uh, pushing us closer and closer to monopoly in the way they've structured uh, these says, hey, you know, um, we're going to monetize this in some other way, and, and therefore we, we need some extra rights uh, for the data. So the way um, the security of the data and the rights of the data change from the consumer to the enterprise domain. Uh, and then there's another thing that happens that, that allows for a competitive advantage to come for a startup. And that is, if, if you try to compete at the pure voice-to-text area, um, it's hard to, to beat something like an Amazon and Google that have, you know, a crushing amount of data. But when you start to customize it for the enterprise and for a particular user in the enterprise, user adaptation becomes really important and you can do user adaptation along with the metadata you get from internal to the enterprise applications that aren't available at the transcription layer. In the transcription layer, you just get some voice and you come out with some text. But if you're deep in an application like Salesforce and you're interacting um where you know that here's a person selling to an end customer, you know that that's a lead, you know that that lead information is in Salesforce, you know the other attendees in the meetings, if you looked at Calendar, you and, then you and then you have some information about the sales process, you can start to customize your vocabulary and adapt both to the inputs around the vocabulary and accents, but also the outputs in terms of your data going into the workflow. So we were very careful in selecting an area where the incumbents didn't have a natural advantage you know, we hope to grow and become an incumbent and get an advantage uh, because we would have done the heavy lifting by then to get there. But nobody yet has it, and so we felt it was much more of a, of a
0: white space than than something like the uh, the consumer domain or, or something like marketing. And so, if you take if you break that distinction apart, right? If you say there's a difference in consumer and there's a difference in enterprise, and take a step back, where you know, where do you think we are in terms of the market cycle for voice, right? And and I'm thinking of the traditional, you know, Gartner hype cycle. There's a lot of critics out there that are saying, you know, we're getting to a classic peak. I think that's a little bit disingenuous because of the power of the fundamental shift that's going on beneath. Um, And and part of the kind of case study that I use to inform that opinion is exactly what, you know, in part what you referenced, the technology that Google recently presented at their I.O., Know, completely lifted my imagination to think that if that's where we are today, where will we, we be in a decade? So talk a little bit more about you know where you see um, the enterprise voice space being today and, and where you think we're headed over the short, medium, and long term, and also shed some light on the biggest technical challenges that you know need to be tackled to make that progress.
1: Yeah, I mean, the problem with hype cycles is they really get you not to focus on the underlying core value problem. Like the time it takes for you to really build excellence in a new technical center and, and then the time it takes it to, to really get adoption is completely complete out, out of sync with, uh, with the hype cycle. Uh, and so I largely just try to avoid the hype, hype cycle in a sense of saying just focus on core value creation and adoption because that's much more important for you to win in the long run. Right? So it's the same, same kind of thing you saw a long time ago when people start you know, jumping on Amazon and say Amazon.com, bomb because they're reacting to the hype cycle and not to the fundamental value creation that Amazon would have created over time. Um, same thing that's going on in voice. Everybody's jumping into it, super sexy, super interesting. Everybody recognizes how incredibly disruptive this could be to the, to the future. Don't, don't be fooled. We're still in inning number one. People will talk about, you know... Um, transcription uh, that's a solved problem that we're already at 92% uh, and and approaching 95% accuracy. Um, Yeah, that's true in some problems, but in multi-speaker meetings, when we run our meeting data on the best algorithms that have previously published that they're already at 92%, then the hype would lead you to believe that we're at. So I think we're in inning number one. And what we're starting to see is very targeted, very specific voice applications, at least, uh, you know, that, that, that I'm looking at in the enterprise. What's going to happen once we succeed with these much more, you know, targeted applications, like, okay, I'm, I'm in a meeting, and Eva, which is, you know, what we created our voice AI, will be there identifying the, the, um, the important moments, the action items, taking them, updating a system like Salesforce and so on, uh, that's a great specific use case. But if we really get broader in impacting workflow over time, we might flip the paradigm on how users interact with software. Instead of saying, hey, you're in an enterprise, learn this complex enterprise system on how to update us on when you're going on vacation and update Salesforce and update all these other uh, systems. The systems are going to learn how your voice works and how you like to update and where we were in 1999, versus where we are in 2018, with with uh, you know the the, the the collapsing of online and offline. Look how much it's evolved over over 19 years. Uh, I think the same thing is going to play out with voice. The hype cycles today, but this is just going to roll out massive impact over quite a long period of time.
0: It's interesting you reference the e-commerce example because uh, you know for. For those listening, if you actually read you know, Mary Meeker's uh, infamous report that came out you know, this past week, um, it's taken 20 years and e-commerce penetration is still only at 13%. Um, so these do these things do really, really take a long time to, to build at, at quality and at, at scale. And I think actually if you if you take the temporal element out of you know the, the conversation we just had, I think there's actually another interesting way to frame the question, and I want to get your thoughts on that. You know, you have an interesting view on the exoskeleton of AI, uh, and why these are no regret moves for when thinking about AI application build out. And I think Eva is a perfect example of you know an application that sits in the exoskeleton. You know, talk through a little bit more um, about what you mean by that concept of exoskeleton of AI, and and why it's. No regret. You know, you've described it really as being areas where technology can create value where there was no human before. So, talk a little bit more about that concept.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was looking at building an AI company, I was uh, acutely aware of the idea that there's two kind of classes of AI. In my opinion, there's the the robots and exoskeletons, and and the robots for things where you, you. Plug it into a factory, and all of a sudden, you know, things get better in the factory, and factory owners are high fiving and, and uh, taking home more pay, and the people who have those jobs are simply out of jobs. And so, I, I do believe robots are, are um, a problem you have to worry about. So, I kind of put my attention to exoskeletons where you're purely creating value and you're not replacing a job. Uh, an example of that is. You know, me and you are writing a text, and, you know, some technology underneath it is statistically understanding our mistyping and helping to correct it as we go. Obviously, you would not employ somebody sitting over your shoulder writing text. Um, and so that's an exoskeleton like behavior. Same thing now, people are furiously taking notes. Meetings. they're not paying attention to the other person, they're forgetting what was said, you don't employ someone to follow you around in every meeting, so we've created an AI that kind of creates that value creation for you. And, and I think it's really fundamental to understand what uh, uh, an exoskeleton can do for us in the future. As people talk about AI and its potential to take away job, the answer isn't to become a Luddite and put our heads in the sand and, and say, let's not do this. The answer is, use our networked human intelligence, because that's what machine learning is. It's, it, it, it really isn't. It's called machine learning, but it's really just capturing massive amounts of human decisions across millions of decisions and thousands of people, and bringing it to bear so that the computer can do something faster. I'm saying just flip that. Take all that massive learning across lots of people and put it, plug it back into making the human either faster or more accurate or have a larger range of activities that they can do.
0: let's actually talk about that latter part, right? Let's say, you know, voice does succeed at scale, pushes through all the technical and non-technical barriers. Um, how do you think about, you know, and and by the way, it's not just for voice, right? It's for other forms of AI as well. So if we take a step back and think about, you know, AI, how do you think about the impact of AI in terms of our macro economy and, and the concept of creative disruption? You know, we, Have a real challenge in this country you alluded to it with the manufacturing and the factory example we have a real challenge where productivity is increasing but median household income is staying the same and you know there are many different reasons for that but if we specifically focus on creative destruction and technology it's interesting right history has always proven the luddites incorrect on the theory that technology destructs more jobs than it creates but the challenge with ai is really going to be the rapid pace of destruction and frankly the displacement it's going to cause how do you think about the creative destruction, you know, theory and concept when it relates to AI? And secondarily, what policy responsibilities do you think you know companies and um, and governments should take on in the space?
1: Yeah, great question. So if you if you look back, you know, in around 1850, where you're having factories all of a sudden become more automated, and you looked at how furniture was created before. So before it would be a highly skilled laborer was creating furniture. All of a sudden. Factory comes in and figures out how to um, scale the creation of furniture without the high skilled labor. So some of the people who were more highly skilled at that time um, were impacted, uh, displaced. It did impact them, but a lot more people of a lower skilled um, uh, nature were given more jobs. And so there was creative destruction, but the balance was um, was such that the creative part kicked in very fast. Whereas what you see in AI right now is, at least the robot part, not the exoskeleton part, is you create a robot, shows up in a factory, many people are out of jobs, and um, I think what's happening there is the destructive part for the next few years will be faster than the creative part. There, There is a creative part. There are people getting jobs, building the AI, um, and building the, the factories of the future that employ these, these AIs is a creative part. I'm just saying that the magnitude of destruction is going to exceed the magnitude of creation for a little while. Uh, and what's worse is that, you know, I went to school, um, undergraduate at MIT, then, then I went to Stanford, so of course I'm hanging out with lots of people who are in a world where we're not going to be affected. As a matter of fact, most of us are going to gravitate to the companies that are going to make money off of this destruction. So part of our education... Um, kind of hides these negative effects and everybody's high-fiving themselves about how much opportunity we have and how the world is growing and we live in a bubble and we don't see the flip side of how that's actually going to
0: Yeah, I think it's actually, I mean, when you pair it back, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think it's actually one of the biggest endemic risks to to our society at large, both for the US's global competitive position as well as intra-US, what will happen in terms of, you know, rapid spread and inequality, et cetera. So I think it's a it's a highly important uh issue that if we don't get policy responsibilities around um very clearly and very shortly, we could um you know, we could have pretty pretty dire effects down the road. You know, Omar, as we as we wrap up um, and as a final question, I want to pair it, you know, I want to bring it back down from, you know, the 30,000, 40,000 foot kind of where we were. Um, and I'm interested in hearing, you know, we've discussed a lot of the intricate details and nuances around voice. I'm interested in hearing your perspective on, you know, what should every business be thinking about with respect to voice today? You know, both from a tactical and a strategic perspective. And I, I think we can actually use, you know, what VoiceEra is doing and, and Eva for meetings in the enterprise as a proxy. You know, what are the capabilities and cultural norms that organizations should really adopt around, you know, meeting structure, core processes to be well positioned for this, you know, next wave of fundamental technological change?
1: Yeah, some of the most fascinating things about um, what we're building here with Eva isn't just the AI part, it's the social design. So, um, you know, you're in a meeting, what should be the participant of someone like Eva. When we first created Eva, Eva would speak to you, and it made a great demo, and people would say, hey, check this out, I can give a command in the middle of my meeting, say, okay, Eva, take an action item to send this, And, and that was great. But what we quickly realized is you wanted something that was much more in the background, that didn't actually want to even interrupt the conversation, you just want to keep it identified important moments, mark them, send them to you, update Salesforce uh, without interrupting. But that was one part of social design. Then the next part really came around who gets to see the audio. So we took the decision early on to say anybody who's on the calendar invite within the meeting should have access to that audio, including the ability to delete it for everybody in case they felt like they didn't want that, that data stored there. So we're doing some things that are with most enterprise software. Last, I want to be able to look at any conversation I had, thread them, look at all my conversations with Nordstrom, see how the inflection point came when things went, you know, grew the business. I want uh, to train a new account manager, have them to be able to go back to that conversation, uh, and 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 so there, I want it lasting long. So we think it's a social experiment. The technical problems to solve here, in terms of you know which which storage model, they're not that hard. It's a, but a very interesting social experiment, and I think companies are going to have very different policies, you know, you hear, you know, the uh, hedge fund company that keeps all its meetings stored, and you have other companies who don't want anything discoverable, and I think it's going to change quite a bit over the next few years, so people are going to have to have a perspective.
0: Well, Omar, this has been, you know, this has been a great conversation, really enjoyed it, and learned a lot of great insights on the on the future of voice today. It's going to be, I think, really interesting uh, and fun to watch this space play out over the years to come, especially this the social design element you were just referencing. So you know, thanks again for coming on, and we really enjoyed having you.
1: Yeah, it was great, great chatting with you. Thank you so much.